0: Listening to the Lanch J Radio Network Paragon, Paragon, Paragon Seven, seven, seven studios, studios. I'm reading from MedCity.com is a HealthCast segment. Fantastic article written by Susan Richards, who's a colleague of mine. I've collaborated with Susan on several webinars and educational sessions this year through, through the RISE Association. And to tell this article, uh, Susan is the director of risk adjustment in education for, for Episource, which is a business partner of mine. Um, fantastic. People to work with. If you're looking for a healthcare solution and you're a payer, you're looking for chart retrieval and coding, looking for analytics, um, definitely call my guys up at Episource. The title of the article is Four Strategies for Strengthening the Payer Provider Relationship. Given that providers are under increased pressure from CMS to take on some form of downside risk by 2025, they and health plans can utilize these four strategies to make the transition smoother. Now, downside risk, if you're not in healthcare conceptually, think about this. A lot of people can, can understand and relate. Let's say you have asthma. And you go to the ER once a month because you have asthma. Well, under a, a historic fee-for-service model, the provider gets paid every time you go in to the ER for asthma. So they get paid. The more and more you come in to manage your asthma, the more you get paid. Well, payers in in CMS is, is really trying to move the model to more of a value-based care where there's skin in the game for the provider to actually control the asthma. So if you need a nebulizer, need new medications, they don't want, hospitals, and provider groups to get rewarded if you stay sick and continue to come in with asthma or diabetes or heart issues. So value-based care models basically state that we're going to pay you more from the payer side to help members control their chronic illnesses. So Susan Richards breaks down four really good strategies. The first one is develop a data-sharing model. Providers are primarily responsible for collecting clinical data, which is used to understand the patient's health status and medical history. By contrast, payers work primarily with patient claims data, which is used for billing. Susan's words, not mine. Currently, many health plans share their data with provider groups, but do so in their plan-specific formatting. Now, I know about that. This leaves provider organizations with the job of aggregating data across payers or working with disparate and disjointed data sets which is not their core competency you kind of think about it from this perspective if you're a payer and you're servicing a specific county or a specific group of zip codes you could be working with united you could be working with humana you could be working with a local blue you could be working with kaiser you could be working with oscar or clover you could be working with six seven eight different payers Each of them has their own data set. Each of them has their own HL7 interface. Each of them has their own vendor. Each of them has their own portal for transition. And you're a provider group. You're not core competent in in data aggregation. You're you're core competent in actually administering care to members and keeping people's A1C down and rehabilitating someone after an accident or stroke. So whatever you can do, to have a data sharing model that is congruent and consistent with the needs of your provider groups—that's that's really, really clutch and really crucial. I've I've sat in many war room meetings where people have argued over data. Just something simple. I'll give you an example in in HEDIS, which is the healthcare effectiveness data information set. It's part of Star Ratings. You have about a dozen measures that that are HEDIS-based measures i would always get it wouldn't be an argument but there there one of the laws for the for the heatest measure for breast cancer is that the mammography has to be done i believe within 24 calendar months so there's a 2 year retrospective on on breast cancer well a lot of times i would get a radiology chart that someone got a mammography, but it was not within the two years. It would be within three years. And if I'm getting the chart from three years ago, it's not valuable for, for CMS's, NCQA's criteria. Doesn't mean that the provider group isn't doing a good job. Doesn't mean that they're not managing the member. Just means that it's not within the the technical specificity of what's needed for submission and for my star rating. Well, if you don't have good data and you don't have good policies and procedures and protocols, I would get charts that were outdated all the time and and then providers would be angry with me because it didn't count. And those are conversations that need to be had up front. Strategy number two, create a long-term plan for taking on risk. Before a provider group even decides to take on risk under a value-based care model, payers can implement triggers which determine an organization's readiness for downside risk. That's a great idea. One example is the population trigger, which ensures that the size of the group's population is large enough to sustain a risk-adjusted contract. This is important because if even one beneficiary is extremely high risk in a very small patient population, they may have a huge impact on its cost. Another type of trigger is a quality trigger that can demonstrate a provider organization's ability to execute preventative services and manage chronic conditions. Also a great point. If you have a small panel of two, 300 individuals and you have one or two individuals that have an extremely high risk score, high risk for heart attack, for stroke, for catastrophic claims. Someone is gonna be in the hospital for, for six months and cost three, $400,000. Well, you have to look at that when putting your risk pool together. Some organizations don't have a large enough panel to go in a value-based care model immediately. You have to stair-step into that. That was my favorite thing to do when I was on that side of the table was actually bring people into risk-sharing arrangements. Ultimately, risk-sharing arrangements, when done correctly, they're great for the payer. They get the star rating benefits and increased scores, better clinical outcomes. It's great for the provider because the providers get a larger percentage of the revenue. So they have skin in the game to make sure that members don't get sicker and manage their chronic conditions. And most importantly, the reason we all got into this business, it's best for the member. I didn't get in this business to aggregate risk scores and to look at at data points on on if 79% of my members had a flu shot versus 82% this year. I got in this business to make sure that my members are healthy, they live longer, and they have a better quality of life. And I think that's why the majority of us that are in this business got into it. Strategy number three. Invest in provider-friendly technologies and services. In addition to creating financial incentives, payers and provider groups can also invest in technologies and services that enhance performance under risk-based contracts. For example, provider organizations can invest in a point-of-care tool which administrative teams use to examine a patient's entire medical history before the visit, which I've seen people do. I worked with Vatica Health many years ago. And, and my, my good friend and mentor, Hassan Rifat, and they have an excellent tool that, that is used in, in patient settings, kind of a, an embedded coder clinician that allows the chart review and everything to be done before the member gets there. When you have technology that creates a more lean and efficient visit for the member, what that does is it allows providers to continue to see. They need to see four or five patients an hour. Think about your own personal experience. When you go to the doctor, you go there, you get to the, to the big lobby, you're sitting there for about 20 minutes, and then they finally call you back, you put your gown on, but you're sitting back in, in the waiting room for another 15, 20 minutes, and then finally the doctor comes, sees you, the doctor's usually there for seven or eight minutes maybe 11 or 12 minutes you discuss with your doctor, they evaluate you. Providers need to, to have that constant flow of members. It's really not in the provider's best interest for them to spend 30, 45 minutes on a member. So technology can, can make this a much better experience both for the member and for the, the provider. And with CMS moving the, the survey results and, and making that a larger component of star ratings, you want to have the best experience for the member. Because if you have a bad experience for the member, they're going to they're light you up on the surveys. And finally, strategy number four, initiate shared member engagement programs, which I'm a, I'm a huge fan of this. Member engagement is so important. Historically, it's a component that has not been addressed well enough by payers or providers. To create an opportunity for providers to interact with the beneficiaries they cover directly, payers can partner with their local communities provider organizations to coordinate events like World Diabetes Day or Annual Wellness Days. In turn, provider groups can also invite payer representatives and educators to sponsor and participate in their community outreach efforts. Through these events, payers and providers can meet face to face and maximize resources available to patients. It also shows a united front for the patients themselves. One of the things when I was at Blue Cross in Arizona, one of the things they, they did very well in the Tucson market, they would have these diabetes education days and they would partner with some of the local malls there and you'd have payers, you'd have providers, you'd have a podiatrist that would come there. You, you'd have nephrology people that would come there and they would do this holistic education. You have, you'd have, Individuals that do dietitian counseling. When I was at Kettering Health in Dayton, Ohio, I actually, I actually managed those health fairs and put those health fairs together. And that's one of the things that I was really proud of during my tenure at, at Kettering Health is we created a fantastic community event that did education and and talked about various chronic conditions so great article by by susan richards my my colleague over at episource just some some strategic analysis by by an expert in this industry that that i've collaborated with these are opportunities for for all organizations to to ultimately come together to get in the war room together and to and to tackle all of these issues with, with chronic conditions And the need for for members to get better service and have better opportunities and have more access. Very, very, very important stuff. Great article. Lance J Show. Live from the Paragon 7 Studios, you are listening to the Lance J Radio Network. Paragon Paragon 7, 7 Studios. For a demonstration request, go to www.episource.com. Rampage, the first lieutenant of the Universal Mode Squad. For those that's listening to this, Lance is a genius. He put a moving office in a G-fizzle, in a G-wagon. All my ballers, all my millionaires, all my trillionaires, all my entrepreneurs. Understand, this man went from hair to hear in a G-Fizzle and he put a moving digital studio right. inside of a G-Wagon. James Lewis. Who believes in themselves, That's independent. You are listening to the Lance J Radio Network. It's electric made extraordinary. Ingenuity in motion. It listens, learns, adapts, and anticipates your every need with intelligence that feels anything but artificial. The EQS from Mercedes-Benz. It's the car electric has been waiting for. It's time to switch to T-Mobile. Right now, pay zero cost when you do. Keep your number and keep your phone. We'll even pay it off. Only at T-Mobile, the leader in 5G.